0: Good morning and Happy New Year, everybody! It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us online. Those of you are with us online, and it is great to see everyone to be back with each and every one of you uh, this brand new year. And like Sharon mentioned, I do believe that it's going to be okay. God's in control, and we're going to be discovering that today. Today, actually, we're starting a brand new series, which isn't really a new series. It's kind of a continuation of an old series. For those of you who are with us in 2021, we started the gospel of Mark. And for those of you who are new to freedom, one of the things that we do here is we take a book of the Bible and we walk through it from beginning to end. And when we, when we, once we start it, we finish it out. And so one of the things we did with Mark is we paused at Mark chapter 10. And we did so in the fall so we could get into Christmas and some other things. Uh, But part of the reason we did that is because Mark 11 through 16 really focuses on the final week of Jesus' life. Mark 11 through 16 is all about the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week, Holy Week. And so we are starting a brand new series today in in 2022 that is going to take us from now until Easter, looking verse by verse from Mark 11 through 16, diving into what is this last week of Jesus' life, and we're calling it The Passion. One week that changed everything. And so if, even, if you did, even if you missed out on the, on the earlier series in Mark, you'll be able to pick right up with us in Mark 11 uh, this morning as we continue this series looking at this last week of Jesus' life. Because a lot happens during Passion Week. A lot of things are going on. In fact, we're going to see a ton of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. You thought we saw a lot of tension between them in Mark 1 through 10? No. What we're going to see in 11 through 12 is everything is going to start building up. Everything is going to start bubbling over, ultimately to the culmination of Jesus' death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. And it's no surprise that Mark devotes one-third of his gospel to the final week of Jesus' life. Think about that. One-third of Mark's gospel is completely and totally devoted to this final week. Why? Because from the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, everything, everything He's done, everything He said has pointed to this week. This series is really about the heart of Christianity. See, without Passion Week... Without Jesus' ultimate death and resurrection, everything we do is in vain. Without the events that occur during the Passion, it would be useless for you and I to actually be here today. Apart from the rain, we should be playing golf if the things that didn't occur during Passion Week happened. That's what Paul said. He said, Unless Christ be crucified and raised from the dead. All that we do, all that we believe, our faith is literally in vain. Now, Passion Week occurs during Passover. And for those of you who are familiar with Jewish history, you know that Passover is a celebration of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. It is when God passed over the houses of the Israelites because they had put blood on their doorposts And he had passed over them and delivered them from the hands of Egypt. Now, during this time of Passover in Jerusalem, the population would swell to three times the normal size. So you'd have pilgrims from all over the world. And they would come and they would gather in Jerusalem on an annual basis in order to celebrate Passover. And that's what we have here. But this Passover is going to be like no other. As Paul talked about this Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he said this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And the events that begin today in in the Passion Week of Jesus set all of that in motion. And this Passion Week begins with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Historically and traditionally, we call this the triumphal entry. Happened on Palm Sunday and, and it is so important and so significant that all four Gospels talk about the, the triumphal entry of Jesus. Why? Because the triumphal entry of Jesus is really a declaration of his kingship. It is Jesus declaring and making it completely known and certain that he is king. See, Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem to be made king. He was already king. Jesus came into Jerusalem on that triumphal entry to do so as the king. See, Jesus is king of kings. Jesus is Lord of lords. He is, always was, always will be king. He is king over everyone and everything, whether or not you and I acknowledge it. He is king. Why? Because he is sovereign, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful God. He is God-made flesh. What we celebrate at Christmas, that God became one of us. And that is why he is king. So he didn't come to be made king. He came to take possession of his kingdom. And he receives his kingdom by way of the cross. And that's what we're going to discover as we look at this this passage from mark 11 through 16 and so jesus our redeemer our savior he is the king of glory we sang about that this morning that he is that is who we're singing about he is the king of glory he is the king of the universe and what we're going to see in mark 11 1 through 11 we're going to see three aspects of who jesus is as king and the first thing i want you to see is that jesus is a king who is in control doesn't that make you feel good to know that Jesus is a king who is in control. I don't know about you, but the last couple of years have felt a little bit out of control. Anybody? Just me? Awesome. Just me. No, some of you? Okay. The last couple of years have felt a little bit out of control. And it doesn't look like any, any, uh, <laughs> any relief in sight, does it, at times? But here's what we can know. And here's what we can rest in. Here's what we can rely on. The fact that we serve a king who is in complete and total Control. Look at Mark 11 beginning in verse 1. Now, when they had entered or drew near to Jerusalem, so Jesus and his disciples are entering and drawing near to Jerusalem, and they get to Bethpage and Bethany of the Mount of Olives. Look what happens. Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And that village was Bethpage. So they're in Bethany. Bethpage was a village right outside of Bethany. And he tells them to go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. Now, that colt, as we discover, I think it's in John's gospel, that that colt is actually a donkey colt. It is, it is, it is, it is a, a donkey. And so it says, go find it. And it's going to be a donkey which no one else has ever sat on. And then at the end of verse 2, he says, untie it and bring it. Verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Which I imagine that would be the case, right? Like, if I just went out and grabbed you, started getting in your car, awesome. Did we lose just, just lights or voices? Well, do I have to yell or no? We're good. Okay, good. Awesome. Um, I think Charles fell asleep. Maybe that's what it was. Just teasing, Charles. Uh, anyway, I lost my point. What was I saying? Yes, if, if, if I just went and got in your car and started driving off, you would probably be chasing after me, right? Well, donkeys, that was their mode of transportation. So somebody's going and stealing somebody's mode of transportation. Well, let's keep going. He says if uh, somebody asks you about that, just say the Lord is in need of it and he'll send it back to you immediately. Yeah, right. That's what I would be thinking. Verse 4 And they went away and they found the colt tied at the door outside on the street and they untied it. And as you can imagine, some of those who were standing there said to them, What are you doing? You're untying the cult? What is going on? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. And they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, let's, let's stop right there for just a minute. So what has happened is Jesus and his disciples, as they get close to Jerusalem, they stop off in Bethany. Now, Bethany is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. If you're familiar with them, Lazarus is the, is the, the man that Jesus rose from the grave, He's Mary and Martha's brother. They were really upset with Jesus because he didn't show up in time. And so this is Bethany. This is where they're at. And they're in this town of Bethany. It's about two miles east of Jerusalem. And so they're in Bethany. And this series of events that occur really and truly show Jesus' sovereignty. They show his control over everything. What we're going to see and what we see in these seven verses is Jesus' painstaking attention to detail, We see that he has carefully planned everything out. And that he is in complete and total control. As Sinclair Ferguson said. And I think he's spot on. He said. Jesus's majesty and his authority begin to shine through. From the moment he enters and nears Jerusalem. See Jesus's triumphal entry on the first day of the week. On Palm Sunday. Would bring about his terrible death on Good Friday, and his burial in a borrowed tomb on the Sabbath, and his glorious resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so what is happening here is Jesus is purposefully, intentionally going public as the Messiah. He is declaring himself and proclaiming himself king. But what we need to understand is that the previous three years, Jesus has pretty much avoided all public recognition. He has often withdrew from the crowds when they wanted to appoint him king and anoint him king. In fact, whenever a demon or, or someone he healed would want to reveal his true identity, what would Jesus do? He would tell no, be quiet. Don't say anything to anyone. But now, in this moment, Jesus is going public. In this moment, Jesus is proclaiming that I am king. In fact, he's inviting the public recognition as we're going to see in just a few moments. And he is doing so with calculated purpose, even his mode of transportation, even the donkey that he rides in on into Jerusalem was carefully and strategically and intentionally chosen. He tells his two disciples, hey, go into Beth Bethpage, go into the village, and there you will find a colt, a donkey, tied up. And it's going to be a donkey that... that No one else has ever ridden. It's going to be an unridden donkey. And so when you read these instructions, it almost sounds like Jesus is telling his disciples to go steal a donkey, doesn't it? Hey, guys, listen. If you will just go and sneak into the next village, and when you find the donkey, just grab it and bring it to me. But that's not what's happening at all. What Jesus is actually showing us is his sovereign power and his absolute control. And this is so important that we understand that we serve a king who is in complete control. When life in the world around us seems out of control, we can rest in the fact that we serve a God who is in complete control. And so what happens? They head over to Beth Page and they find the donkey exactly like Jesus described. Which doesn't seem surprising, right? I mean, Jesus has done this before. He's told them to go do something and something happened just the way he said. But what is surprising is what happens next. What surprises me about this is Jesus' control... Over man's will. And what do I mean by that? Like, there's a group of people apparently that are there, and we don't know if the owner of the donkey's there, but we do know that these men see the disciples taking the donkey, and they're like, dude, what are you doing? Where are you taking that donkey? And, G- and, the, and the disciples say, hey, listen, the Lord wanted it. What we don't know is whether or not these men were believers or unbelievers. We don't know if they were religious or irreligious. We don't know if they had any advance notice, which I seriously doubt that they did. They're just sitting there, and all of a sudden, two strangers come and start taking away a donkey, and they let them. Why? Because Jesus willed it to be. Because Jesus determined that that was what was going to happen, and it did. But you see, Jesus has complete and total control and sovereignty over our lives. Now, that's hard to wrap our heads around sometimes, isn't it? Isn't it? Especially when bad things happen. Especially when difficult things happen. Especially when we get a diagnosis of cancer. Or our spouse says they want a divorce. Or or we face difficulty and death. and, And we wonder, like, God, how are you in control? Why would you let this happen? That's when we have to rest and realize that Jesus is a king who is in complete control. That's why Paul said that that all things, good and bad, work for the good. They're not all good, but they work for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus has control over man's will, but he also has control over creation. I I don't know about you. Maybe you're a rancher or a cowboy. I'm not. Like I've ridden a horse maybe once or twice in my entire life. So I'm no rancher. But I have watched enough westerns to know that you just don't go and hop on an unridden animal. Right? Like you don't just go and jump on a donkey or a horse or anything, a colt, and say, hey, I'm going to ride you today. No, what happens to happen? They have to be broken. They have to be trained. But that's not what happens, is it? Jesus has so much control over his creation that they bring this unridden colt to Jesus and he sits on it without breaking it, without training it, and he quietly and gently rides into Jerusalem. Why? Because he is completely and totally in control. (coughs) Which leads to the question, why a donkey? And specifically, why an unridden donkey, right? That seems like such an odd thing for Jesus to go send his disciples like I don't know if I like if I were Jesus I'd be like okay go get me the best stallion the most beautiful horse with the with the you know the saddle on it and like ready to be ridden but that's not what he does he goes go get a donkey and one that's never been ridden one that's never been sat on why because 500 years earlier the prophet Zechariah had said that the Messiah would come riding on the colt of a donkey Listen to Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Remember, this is a declaration of Jesus' kingship. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. What is Jesus doing? He is consciously purposefully declaring himself king he is pointing us to this prophecy in Zechariah 9 saying I am fulfilling that prophecy today today in your presence Jerusalem your king is coming to you Jesus rode into that donkey knowing exactly what he was doing he was proclaiming himself king He was fulfilling the Old Testament messianic prophecies. He was identifying himself in the lineage, the royal lineage of Judah. See, Jesus is in complete and total control. Which we can rest in that church. We can rest in the fact that we serve a king who is in complete control. If he took that much control and attention in this moment, in these seven verses, just think of how much control... He wants to have in your life, in my life. When things seem to be falling apart, when life seems to be throwing everything at us, Jesus is looking at us like Sharon said, I got this. It's going to be okay. So we serve a king who is in control. But not only that, we serve a king who alone can save. We serve a king who alone can save. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this. And many, this is after he's, he's sitting on the donkey, many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who were following. So just picture this massive parade of people heading from Bethany into Jerusalem, this two-mile trek going into the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. And you've got people in the front and you've got people in the back of Jesus. And they're all shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is the King, the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. So he mounts this donkey and this parade begins and Jesus is publicly presenting himself as the Christ, the Messiah, the King. And the people recognize it and they start shouting, Hosanna, the King is coming. Hosanna, here comes our King. Hosanna, the King of David has arrived. Many in the crowd threw their cloaks on the road and they waved palm branches and as a sign of reverence and a sign of submission to the king. Now, here's the reality. You don't throw your jacket on the road, especially a Middle Eastern dusty road for anyone, just anyone, right? You don't even do it for, for a real respected family member. No, you do it for royalty. So they are declaring Jesus as king. You don't cut branches off of trees and wave them in the streets because you feel elated. No, they're doing it because they are welcoming a king. And they they have at least that much understanding of this moment. And then they begin to shout. And the words that the crowd shouts could not have been truer. But they also could not have been more misunderstood in that moment. They begin to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna was a customary greeting at Passover. Hosanna was was, was what... Uh, the the Israelites would shout during this time. Why? Because Hosanna literally means save us. So as they celebrated Passover, they would shout, Hosanna, save us. God save us. God redeem us. God restore us. Why? Because that's what God had done when they were in, in Egypt. He had redeemed them. He had set them free. He had delivered them. So Hosanna was what they would shout as a celebration of their deliverance out of Egypt. And here they are shouting Hosanna in anticipation of the messianic liberation and deliverance from Rome. See, they are expecting Jesus to enter into Jerusalem and set the Israelites free from Roman occupation. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're they're shouting about so they're shouting hosanna save us and so they're prophetically repeating over and over and over again that jesus is our deliverer saying save us save us save us now the reality is not even jesus's disciples understood the significance of what they were shouting until after his death and resurrection See, after Jesus rose from the grave, then they started putting the pieces all together. But in this moment, they don't understand what they're saying. Their cry was true. Jesus alone can save. But not in the way they expected. Not in the way they anticipated. And not in the way that they hoped. You see, they were looking and longing for a political leader. A military leader a temporal leader who would set them free from their bondage to Rome. That's not why Jesus came. No, Jesus came to set us free eternally from the bondage of our sin. Jesus came to bring redemption and salvation to us forever, for eternity, to restore our relationship with God. So Jesus is the Savior and King. But not to deliver us from Rome, not to deliver them militarily or politically. No, he came to save his people from their sin. I love the way John 1, 12 says it. It says, but to all. This means that Jesus himself is the the savior of all of us. Any of us, not just the Jews, but to all. And it says, but to all who received him. He gave them the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever what believes in Him will not what perish, but have everlasting eternal life. That's why He came. John fourteen six. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me." Acts four twelve says, "And salvation is in no one, for there is no other name." Given in heaven and on earth, by which men must be saved. First Timothy 2 says, "For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, and that mediator is Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, Jesus' is salvation. Jesus' is victory his salvation is victory over li- a victory of life over death, truth over error, salvation over sin. Love over hate. Forgiveness over condemnation. That's the kind of salvation Jesus brings. And Jesus alone has the power to save us. Jesus alone has the power to redeem us. He came to redeem us from our sin. He came to restore our relationship to God. Which leads us to the third and final aspect of who this king is that I want to point out to you. And that is this, that we serve a king... Who restores God's glory. We serve a king who restores God's glory. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> and he entered Jerusalem. And he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything. As it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Seems like a rather anticlimactic. Ending to this amazing story, this amazing events that just occurred. It seems like Mark just kind of ends it in such a dry and kind of, you know, uh, uninspiring way, doesn't it? It's like Jesus arrived, he got in Jerusalem, went to the temple, looked around, went back to Bethany. Story ends. But I want you to see some incredible truth That is found in this one verse. This is amazing when you dig into it. Because I want you, first of all, we have to remember where Jesus is at this time. He's in Jerusalem. And if you recall back in our earlier study of Mark, there was a time in Jesus' life and ministry where he set his heart and his mind toward Jerusalem. And he prophesied and he told his disciples that we are going to Jerusalem. And when we go to Jerusalem, I am going to suffer and die there. And now he has arrived in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was not Jesus' ultimate destination. His ultimate destination was the temple. Why? Because the temple is where the sacrifices were made. See, Jesus went to Jerusalem not just to go to the city, but to go to the cross. He went to Jerusalem in order to be the sacrifice that would take away our sin. And so Jesus comes to the temple, to the place where sacrifices were made. Why? Because he is the Passover lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. John's gospel tells that the word tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What that word dwelt among us literally means is tabernacled among us. Now, if you can if you recall your Old Testament history, you know that the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple, was where the Israelites, as they were traveling. Uh, those forty years in the desert, they would set up this tabernacle and that 's where they would offer sacrifices that 's where they would they would gather to worship god and so what jesus is is saying or what God is saying through through john 's gospel is that Jesus is the tabernacle he came to fulfill all the sacrificial requirements of the temple of the tabernacle He came to to once and for all finish. The sacrificial system and usher you and I into the presence of God. And that's what we see here. And it's significant because Jesus, everything he did pointed to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the sacrificial system. In fact, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it again. He wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. He's saying, I am the temple. I am the place where you come to know God. I am the place that will be the ultimate sacrifice for your sin. But here's the other thing I want you to see. I want you to see the beauty of verse 11. Because it seems mundane. It seems anticlimactic. But in 586 B.C., the prophet Ezekiel had a vision from God. And in that vision from God... He saw the glory of God leave the temple and descend upon Bethany. Why did the glory of God leave the temple? Because of Israel's sin, because of their rebellion, because they had turned their backs on God and they started worshiping idols and they started forsaking their commitment and their devotion to God. So Ezekiel sees this vision, he has this vision. And he sees the glory of God leave the temple. He sees the glory of God leave Jerusalem. He sees the glory of God ascend on the Mount of Olives at the city of Bethany. Now, picture what Jesus just did. At his triumphal entry, what does Jesus do? He descends from Bethany, from the Mount of Olives. He enters the east gate of the holy city And he goes into the temple. You See what happened? Jesus has brought the glory of God back into the temple. In 586 BC, the glory left the temple. Now, at Jesus' triumphal entry, the glory returns to the temple. Jesus is the glory of God. And He came to restore that and He came to bring that. In other words, what He's saying is that I am the King of glory and I'm in your midst and you are in my presence and I came to restore the glory of God back into our lives. Many of you have heard that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We can't glorify God apart from Jesus Christ. The way you and I bring glory to God is by receiving the salvation that Jesus brings. And when we receive the salvation that Jesus brings, then and only then are we able to bring glory to God. And so, what Jesus does in this moment is he is restoring the glory of God back where it belongs. In fact, Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 4, and he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, listen to this, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus has come to restore God's glory back into our lives. See, when God created us, he created us for a relationship. Back in the Garden of Eden, when the glory of God walked with and conversed and fellowshiped with Adam and Eve before they sinned, He came to restore that. That was His purpose for us. He designed us and created us for a relationship with Him. But our sin separated us from God. Our sin kept us from receiving the glory of God and fellowshipping with the glory of God. But Jesus comes back and He restores that glory. He is the vessel that will display the light of God's glory for ages to come. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, it talks about this heavenly city of Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem that will be restored, where we as Christ's followers will be gathered together to worship Him forever and ever. And here's what it says. It says that the the city will not need lights. It will be illuminated by the glory of Christ Jesus. In fact, it says the glory of God will illuminate it. The Lamb, the Lamb, what Lamb? the Passover lamb, Jesus will be its light, Revelation 21, 23. See, it was from his face, his beauty, that restored the glory of God, and he still is the light to the world. And so Jesus is our king, a king who is in control of all things a king alone who can save and a king who restores God's glory And see what we know is that our king has come but our king is also coming back the first time Jesus came very few bowed before him the next time Jesus comes Paul says in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king and he is Lord The first time Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode in on a donkey. And that is significant because oftentimes when kings would go out to battle and they would win the battle in victory, they would come riding in on a donkey because that donkey represented peace. See, the first time Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he came to bring peace between us and God. The second time Jesus returns, he's going to be riding on a horse. When kings rode in a horse, that meant a conquering king was coming. So this moment in Jesus' life is incredibly significant, which should give us pause to reflect and think on our own relationship with Jesus. It should cause us to pause and reflect on how well are we following Jesus. What does our loyalty to Jesus look like? Because he is king. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, Jesus Christ is King. So this year, 2022, we start a brand new year. And I think brand new years are always great times of reflection. It's a great time to examine our own lives and and, and determine where we are with Jesus. What does our devotion to him look like? What does our loyalty to him look like? How well are we following him? So, you know, as I think about this passage, I I wonder, are we ready to obey Jesus? And surrender to him. Even when his instructions seem puzzling. Because you know those two disciples. Like he's got to be crazy. He's sending us to go steal a donkey. Listen the reality is. Jesus may ask us to obey him in some crazy things. At least from a human perspective. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to lay down our cloaks. Our leaves. Spread them on in front of him. To honor him. Even though it seems bizarre. Or. Or. Have we so domesticated and trivialized our Christian commitment, our devotion to Jesus, that we simply look to him as someone who will help us do the things we want to do anyway? That's the reflection. That's what we need to think about. Is Jesus, ultimately the question is, is Jesus your king? That's the question we have to answer. Is he your king? Have you received his forgiveness through his atoning sacrifice? Have you received the salvation that he alone can bring? Have you submitted to him completely and fully? Are you willing to follow him wherever he leads you? Those are the questions we have to ask. For those of us here this morning that are not Christ followers, here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear that we have a king who is mighty to save. He wants to offer you forgiveness. He wants to offer you grace. He wants to turn your condemnation into restoration. And he came to restore the relationship that you can have with God. And so I would say if you're not a follower of Jesus, begin this year by submitting your life to him. By receiving this gift of forgiveness that he offers. By surrendering and submitting and following him. And for those of us who are Christ followers, I think we need to understand that one, we have a king who's in control. Listen, church, even when life seems out of control, even when things seem to be falling apart, Jesus is still at the helm. He is still 100% in control and we can rest in that and we can trust in that and we can place our faith in that. But not only that, we have a king who restores God's glory. See, the chief end, the reason God created us is that we would bring glory to God and enjoy Him forever. We have an opportunity to begin 2022 saying, you know what, God, that is my purpose. That is why I am here, to bring glory to you. Whatever you ask, wherever you lead, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring glory to you. Let's pray. Now, I want to do... Things a little bit different in our prayer time this morning. I want to kind of lead and guide us in a in a prayer, in a time of prayer, where you have an opportunity to pray, just right there where you're seated. Because I don't know what you need this morning. I don't know what kind of king you need in your life this morning. Some of you here, you're need you're in need of a king who's in control. You feel like life is out of control. You feel like things are spinning and you just have no control. Plates are falling and just life seems disrupted and dismantled. And you need a king that is in control. Others of you, you may need a king that is there to save. He's mighty to save. Who alone can save? And some of us need a king who can restore glory in our lives. And so I just want to give us a few moments just to res- re- respond in faith. But I want you to reflect on your own life and just ask, Jesus, what king do I need? And so just in your own words that right there, just make that seat that you're sitting in kind of your own tabernacle, your own altar. And just spend a few moments reflecting and saying, Jesus, what kind of king do I need? And maybe it's all three. Maybe the picture of this king that we see in the triumphal entry is is the king that you need. You need a king that is in control, that can save, and that can restore God's glory. And so, Father, we come to you from all different perspectives, all different situations. Every single person in this room and every single person watching online, our lives are different and we're going through different things. And this morning, we need to know that you are our king. You're king in our darkest hours and you're king in our brightest days. And we want to acknowledge that you're king. And I know, Father, there are times in my own life where I think I'm king. Where I think I'm in control. Where I want to take the reins of my life. And Father, I repent of those times. And if that's you, I encourage you to repent of those times. Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry for trying to take control. You are the king, not me. Father, some of us this morning, we need a king who we know that is in control. Life seems to be spinning out of control. And if that's you this morning, just pray and ask Jesus, Jesus, you take control. Show me your power. Show me your sovereignty. Help me to see that you are in control and help me to trust you even when I can't see it. And Father, some of us need a king who is mighty to save. Perhaps it's for salvation. Perhaps we've never placed our trust in you, and and that's where we begin. But for others of us, we need a king who can save us from the, the challenges of life, the difficulties of life, whether it be medical or whether it be physical or whether it be emotional. Jesus, you are mighty to save. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would realize that you were king and you came to restore your glory in our lives. May this year be a year where we live for your glory and your glory alone. May that be our purpose and maybe that be our passion that we would do anything and everything we can to bring glory to you and to enjoy you because you came is a king to restore glory. Jesus, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you that you are the reigning king. We pray that you would reign in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, church, we're going to conclude our time of worship this morning with communion. Can't think of a better way to acknowledge that Jesus is our king than by celebrating communion as a church family. Because all that is possible because of his broken body and his shed blood on our behalf. Now, if you're new to freedom, you haven't been around here, the way we do communion, we have four stations set up in the four corners of this room. And we invite anyone who is a Christ follower, you don't have to be a member of our church, but anyone who is a Christ follower, we invite you to come it's your leisure over this as we worship Jesus through this next song and take and receive communion. Many people choose to do it as a family or family and friends um, but we just encourage you to own your own, to make your way to one of the stations. We have uh, prepackaged um, communion sets if you prefer. We also have cups and bread separately and whichever you prefer you can take and receive communion but do so as a reminder that Jesus is king. And He is a King that we worship because of His broken body and His shed blood on our behalf. And So let's stand, let's worship, let's remember Christ's sacrifice for us as we receive communion, as we worship Him with all that we have. Because He truly is King.